Hello and welcome to the second episode of Dr. Online Medcast. In this episode, we discuss the management of burns. Our guest speaker is Dr. Andrew Were, a board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon. So, Dr. welcome to today's episode. Thank you. Yeah, so we take this opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. Yes, so uh, thank you. My name is uh, Dr. Andrew Were, as you've been told. Uh, I'm a, a board-certified plastic and constructive uh, surgeon, uh, and I'm happy to be here to share with you knowledge about uh, burn management in our country. Thank you. So, Dr. we are going to take a case. This is a real case that was uh, submitted by one of our users. So, a 64-year-old male patient was activated at a level 3 hospital after being involved in slum fire following a house explosion. He was awake and oriented with no loss of consciousness at the scene but had significant uh, thermal burns, according to the emergency medical technicians. Physical examination revealed an elderly man who was tachycardic at 112 beats per minute, tachypnic at 24 breaths per minute, and the blood pressure was low, at uh, slightly low, borderline but slightly low, 97 over 62, with full thickness burns to the face, neck, posterior torso, arms and legs. He is obese and weighs 100 kgs as estimated by the emergency technicians. The calculated total burn surface area was 80%. So we want to know how to approach such a patient. So before we go to the case, what is the magnitude of the problem? <coughs> Which type of bands are you seeing in, uh, in the band center that you are working at? Yeah, so uh, worldwide, uh, I think uh, the issue of bands is a problem uh, that we do face in our emergency department. Uh, uh, hardly a day goes by without uh, you receiving a band patient. Um, and you find that bands uh, are the fourth uh, leading cause of trauma worldwide. And I think it's a scenario that we also see uh, here in our country where other than the road traffic accidents, uh, the falls uh, and injuries from violence, you find that uh, the fourth cause of trauma that we see in our uh, in our emergency centers are normally from burns. And um, in our setup, you find those who present with burns are normally the toddlers uh, and the population from around 29 to 59 years old. Uh, who are normally uh, affected by these bands. Um, in Kenya, what we tend to see more is um, open flame bands, and these uh, are bands uh, that you sustain from open uh, fire. Uh, for example, uh, stove explosions, gas explosions, uh, or a house uh, catching fire when you've left uh, the baby to rush to buy something in the shop. Uh, we see a lot of those cases. Uh, of late, we've been seeing because of the increase in the uh, peri-urban and urban soil uh, settlements. We've been seeing a lot of cases of uh, electrical uh, injuries also uh, occurring in our setup. But most of the bands that we do see, uh, now the open flame bands, uh, bands from uh, fluids, boiling tea, uh, boiling water, uh, water that has been placed aside, uh, especially in children, in the cold season, and um, now the electrical bands. Okay. So in short, you are saying that uh, in children, the most common type of burn is uh, scalp. 
yeah, in children, uh, what we see the most of the burn injuries that they do uh, sustain then come from, uh, uh, for example, them amassing their hands in boiling water, boiling tea, or uh, because of their height, maybe they're trying to reach out for something on uh, on the table and then the water spills on them. Okay. And how about the elderly? What 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 is the mechanism of burns in yeah. the so, elderly patients? Uh, yeah. So for uh, those are for the toddlers where we see those kind of injuries. We find for a bit the older children, and now we are seeing increased cases of uh, five years and above uh, when they're playing out uh, in the periurban settlements. Mm. We are getting electrical injuries because of them touching uh, high voltage wires. Uh, the elderly, what we tend to see more, uh, or, uh, above 29 and above, uh, we, we see uh, those who are intoxicated. Now, uh, maybe going back to their homes and we, they get a lot of open flame, uh, burns with a, a lot of uh, smoke inhalation. Uh, maybe uh, the person is sick and is in the house and is unable to move, and then the house catches fire, maybe due to an electrical fault or to a stove that has exploded or a gas explosion, then you find uh, we see that pattern of uh, more open flame burns uh, in them. Of course, there are those occupational hazards. Uh, this is for the working population. Those who work uh, in industries, some of them can sustain chemical burns. And um, those who are, uh, uh, are working, let's say, with, uh, in electrical uh, uh, institutions where there's... Uh, um, live uh, uh, electricity being used, then they get uh, electrical burns. Okay, so it's it's also important to note that uh, burns in management of burns in the elderly patients can be difficult because of uh, the presence of comorbidities. You find that some of them have diabetes, hypertension, cancers. So all these comorbid conditions make management of burns difficult in the in the elderly population. So before we delve into the case, or before we follow up on the management of the patient in question, maybe you can take us through the current thoughts in classification of burns. Yeah. So uh, what do you see? Well, current thoughts of classification of burns, you can, as I mentioned, depending on the type of burn injury, which I've said, it can be either an open burn injury, a skull, an electrical, uh, low voltage or high voltage injury, it can be uh, a lightning strike, um, or a flash burn from lightning. Um, but now, uh, what makes more sense to us and uh, in terms of management of the burns is actually in terms of the depth. And here we classify burns as superficial burns, and this is where the epidermis has been damaged. And most of the time, this is when you see uh, the skin is wet. Um, and then we have the superficial partial thickness, uh, an easy way of identifying uh, this kind of burns, because these are the ones that have gone up in the papillary dermis, is where you see their blisters uh, 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 doing that ginger. Then, uh, and this is traditionally what we call the second degree burns. Then we have the deep partial thickness, where it has uh, gone all the way uh, to the reticular dermis uh, uh, level. And these uh, uh, are the bands that when you look at a patient when he comes uh, to the facility is uh, leathery white in appearance. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, now we have the full thickness bands that goes all the way beyond the subcutaneous level uh, of the skin. 
So that's how we do classify bands, and uh, it's important because you find that depth of injury uh, will guide you uh, in the management of the bands, especially in the fluid requirements of these patients. And it will also determine the prognosis. Yes, and in terms of healing of the wound. Yeah, uh, uh, when you have the superficial bands within two weeks. Uh, you can heal and you can be treated as an patient, but you find when you have more than 20% burns uh, and um, therefore superficial partial thickness, uh, then, uh, and depending which areas uh, they're involved, then you need to uh, be cautious and management with this patient in a burn center. Okay. So the current management, the current thoughts in the management for of burns uh, follows that we we follow the TLS protocol. Yeah. That is airway, breathing, circulation, mm-hmm. uh, exposure. So in the immediate setup, when you're considering the airway, what is what is important to you? What yeah. I think for for plastic surgeon, when you look at the airway, mm-hmm. um, is uh, how compromised or how affected has it been? Uh, in that particular burn injury, you find especially burns that affect uh, the f- the face and the mouth area. Uh, you need to look at them more keenly because, uh, in terms of the airway compromise, once it has occurred, uh, it's normally very difficult uh, to uh, save that patient or manage that patient adequately. So, in the airway, we're more uh, we want to ensure that uh, we do early intubation. Of these patients, especially those who have been uh, sustained burns in closed um, spaces, or uh, there's suspicion that they came in unconscious or uh, that they inhaled uh, a lot of smoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are patients that, uh, according to the airway, that we need to move the speed and intubate uh, and treat them within a burn center. Uh, when you move to the breathing uh, 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 on the airway aspect, also there's the issue of the carbon monoxide. Uh, poisoning, um, and I think um, uh, traditionally they, we have been relying on uh, blood gas analysis to detect that. But uh, uh, what is more important is for you to give uh, 100% oxygen mm-hmm. until you can rule out um, uh, any uh, uh, suspicion of uh, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, especially if these patients come to you uh, unconscious. Okay. You need to have that high index of suspicion. Okay. And uh, the only way you can determine the, the carbon monoxide poison is through a special test uh, for the uh, oxy, uh, carboxyhemoglobin. Carboxyhemoglobin levels. Yes. So it is important to note that uh, pulse oximetry, they don't... They don't Yes, yes. Pulse oximetry, they, they, they don't, don't have much value in mm-hmm. management. I think what you need to focus on at that particular time is to give this patient uh, 100% supplemental oxygen mm-hmm. um, until uh, you rule out uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, in the management of <coughs> carbon monoxide poisoning, hyperbaric oxygen yeah. is usually used. Yeah. At least that from the American guidelines, yes. poisoning guidelines. Mm-hmm. So, what's your take on the use of hyperbaric oxygen in in burns patients? Yeah, it should be used. Our problem uh, in our setup is the availability of the same. I mm-hmm. think uh, in this country, uh, I think we have one or two, mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, based on the other competing uh, uh, illnesses in the market that they're useful, 
I think, uh, uh, and the complexity of a burn patient mm-hmm. is been burnt. Um, uh, let's say more than forty percent will be very difficult for them to use hyperbaric oxygen on this patient mm-hmm. in those uh, confined spaces. So we still advocate for a hundred percent supplemental oxygen as the treatment of choice, especially here. Okay. So maybe before we leave the airway and breathing, in terms of management of uh, burns patients, you could talk about what are the signs that someone could be having inhalational injuries. So when, especially these patients come and you see they have singed hair, Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, the burns in the uh, uh, face and the mouth area. Uh, you see the singing of hair uh, along the nostrils. Uh, maybe they are coughing, and when they are coughing, they are uh, producing carbonaceous uh, sputum. Uh, that should uh, uh, indicate that actually there have been uh, some smoke inhalation. Of course, uh, a very obvious sign when you're taking the history from them is then the hoarseness of voice. Mm-hmm. which now should raise your index of suspicion that uh, uh, they, they must have been an inhalation injury uh, in this particular patient and you need to move quickly and intubate this patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even if they look conscious but they have inhalational injuries, yeah. the, best, the best option of management is early intubation. Early intubation is the best option of management because they, uh, if you delay, then they, uh, you'll find there'll be so much swelling Mm-hmm. that you cannot be able to intubate these patients later. And you need to intubate at least for a minimum of 72 hours mm-hmm. uh, before removing it. Otherwise, if you don't do that early, then uh, you stand the risk of having airway compromise in these patients. Mm-hmm. Actually, there is an adage that says that if you are not too sure, intubate. You intubate. Yes. Yeah. So with that, we come to circulation. Yeah. So how do we determine pan severity and fluid requirements? Yeah. So uh, there are different formulas that we've been uh, using. Uh, of course, Parkland's formula has been uh, the darling of most uh, surgeons uh, when resuscitating uh, patients and has been used in most accident emergencies. The problem with Parkland's formula is sometimes it tends to waste, uh, to, to give uh, so much fluid. Um, but uh, we have the land boundary chart, which is more... Uh, accurate in terms of determining the fluid requirements, especially in children, and that is what uh, we do uh, advocate for calculation of the uh, burn uh, uh, surface area of mm-hmm. injury. Of course, the, the rules of nine uh, is another formula we can use uh, for quick calculation. But uh, with technology, we also have uh, different apps that have come in the market that can be able to accurately help you in determining uh, the percentage. So then from this particular percentage, uh, for example, in this patient with 80%, then you can decide to use uh, the different uh, formulas for calculating down the fluid requirement, which I'd mentioned earlier, which is the Parkland's formula, or you can use the Brooks formula, which is Parkland's formulas uh, per kg per total burn surface area, or Brooks uh, two meals per kg per uh, total burn surface area. So you'll find... Uh, uh, judicious administration of fluid, people will tend to use the two meals per kg uh, and titrate it because when you use the Parkland's formula sometimes, you tend to cause fluid overload. It overestimates the fluid requirement of the patient. Okay, it's 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 quite interesting to to note <coughs> that the, the rule of nines was made from the assumption 
that everybody has the body of Atlas. Mm. Atlas was uh, a god in, in Greek mythology mm. who, had a, who had a perfect body. Yeah. So that's where the rule of nines was was derived. Yeah. But uh, our bodies are not the same. That's why the London Brother Church was is is, like, is a better. It's a better. One. It's yeah. a better. Yeah. And you can actually move to another level where now we have specific apps that can help you accurately calculate mm -hmm. uh, the total balance of a cell in a patient. Okay. And available uh, for download. And then maybe as a rejoinder, yeah. the formulas that are being provided, the Brooks and the Parklands formula, yeah. they are only for the initial fluid management. They yes. just determine the initial fluid management. Yeah. And therefore, further fluid management should be guided by the by the urine output yes. and the kidney functions. Yes, that, mm -hmm. that ideally should be the case. And uh, also to note is that um, you see these patients... Um, uh, the formula only applies up to 50% bands. You cannot use it beyond that. Mm -hmm. So uh, for you to ensure that the patient is adequately resuscitated, you'll find uh, the, the, there are challenges that determine uh, or precede these adequate resuscitation. Because when a patient has, a, for example, a deep full thickness, or a full thickness band or deep partial thickness, you'll find the fluid requirement is much more Mm -hmm. uh, compared, so the depth of injury is very important. The time of presentation mm -hmm. to the facility is also very important because you find if you present late, then your fluid requirement might be a bit higher compared if you present early to a burn center. Uh, also, we find these patients who are intoxicated or have other comorbid conditions, their fluid requirement might not be the same. So, for you to accurately determine that uh, you have ac uh, accurately uh, the these patients, then you need to ensure that the fluid output is 0.5 mils per kg uh, for adults and one mil per kg uh, for children. Any children less than 30 kg, then you need to ensure that uh, they at least is creating per hour uh, one mil per kg per hour. So from the Parkland's formula yeah. in children, now, once we have calculated the fluid requirements, mm -hmm. it's 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 also important that we we add the maintenance fluids. Yes, and uh, what we do here in our setup is uh, that's the other group uh, that also require higher fluid requirements, uh, other than the people who are alcoholic at the time they presented burns, uh, people uh, people who have deeper burn injuries, um, uh, these uh, and electrical and electrical. These patients, mm -hmm. uh, you need to add at least 5% uh, dextrose uh, for the maintenance fluid. And this is important for these children because remember, uh, when they receive a burn injury, then there's increased uh, catabolism and demand for sugar. And uh, their liver at that particular time is not uh, functioning optimally. And that's why we use 5% dextrose uh, for the pediatric population in terms of ensuring that uh, we calculate uh, the fluid requirement and to top it up uh, with a normal daily requirement, we use 5% extras. Okay. So I'll take you to a topic that has been a matter of debate in the resuscitation world. So we have crystalloids versus colloids. Where do you put your coin and why? Uh, 
because of the injury um, uh, that has occurred, mm-hmm. you find if you use colloids, then you'll find that uh, the fluid retention within uh, the intravascular uh, space is much better. And as physiologists will explain to you, uh, the the problem with the colloids that we have in the market is availability uh, and also difficulty uh, in terms of uh, knowing the uh, accurate amount of fluid that has been given. So we prefer in our setup and what you have used wingers lactate very efficiently uh, as a crystalloid uh, and supported in most studies as a fluid of choice uh, for these burn patients. But of course, there are those experimental and those situations where we have very severe burns where we have a oil of colloids. So I still go uh, with crystalloids uh, for that. Okay. Yeah. And the, your favorite crystalloid is ring as lactate. Yeah. In fact, okay. we advocate that when a patient tells you, uh, when you're calculating whichever formula you're using, put them on ring as lactate. If it's children, uh, add 5% dextrose. Okay. Yeah. So it is also important to note that uh, excessive fluid resuscitation can worsen outcomes because it can lead to respiratory insufficiency, cardiac failure, and uh, compartment syndrome. Okay. So, about high dose vitamin C in reducing fluid requirements, yeah. it has been used in some centers yeah. with uh, variable success. Yeah. What is your take on that? Uh, we haven't used it locally a lot, uh, uh, but yes, I've come uh, across studies, uh, and I think we need to uh, uh, even do local studies to correlate uh, those studies that have been done. I think it has a role uh, in terms of uh, uh, reducing the fluid requirement uh, for that particular patient. Yeah. So we need to do more studies. I think we need to uh, localize the studies and see whether it's something that can work uh, for us. It has a role that, uh, uh, according to the studies we have read, but um, um, I haven't seen it being used so much uh, in our market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Were, there is the hypermetabolic response. That occurs in bands. This is usually now there is increased metabolic rate. We have uh, hyperthermia. Yeah. We have uh, a lot of uh, weight loss, muscle mass loss. So, could you explain to our yeah. audience what yeah. what is hypermetabolic response yeah. and how do we address it? Yeah. So hypermetabolic response, you normally see it in most of the band patients, and this is because of the catecholamine surge that occurs. Uh, and these tend to increase uh, the basic, uh, the body metabolic rate. Uh, and we find that uh, there's excess um, uh, catabolism that is occurring in this patient, and that's why it leads to the weight loss and stuff. And that's why you find that um, in some setups where we have used propanolol uh, uh, to uh, mitigate uh, the, the effect of the catecholamines, and you're able to bring this. And um, it's also important for you to note that this uh, metabolic state in burn patients uh, does not just occur during the burn incident, but can also can actually drag along to even one year uh, past the burn injury. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of the uh, catabolism, we have used propanol to uh, be able to lessen the, the requirement. This is also where we, you find that in burn patients, we need a nutritionist to be on board uh, to help in terms of providing uh, uh, high-calorie diet 
to help uh, uh, mitigate the effect of this. Um, but also, there's a role of using anabolic uh, uh, substances. Uh, insulin has been used. Insulin uh, growth factor, uh, growth factor has also been used. Uh, oxandrolone is also uh, becoming popular in terms of uh, uh, promoting anabolism in these patients uh, to counter the catabolic e- uh, effect from uh, the excess release of catecholamines from these patients. Mm. Yeah. So oxandrolone is a is 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 a testosterone analog yeah. without virilizing effects. Effects. Yes. So it can help with uh, building the muscle mass. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So sepsis in bands, it's a big problem. Yeah. So could you tell us how it occurs and uh, the common organisms that you are dealing with, the stubborn ones, and how you get out of the out of that pit? I, th- I think uh, for you to understand how sepsis occurs in bands, the first thing is to understand what is the role of the skin. Mm-hmm. Once the skin is compromised, which is a protective layer, then the organisms will have a field day in terms of penetrating uh, uh, that particular organism. So you find uh, also they use uh, the long uh, layoff by bands uh, in our band centers. Uh, the use of uh, cannulas, using of uh, NG tubes, use of uh, catheters also predispose this band patient to further risk. And, and that's why uh, if you find in, more, in, in our band centers now we have moved and this also helps uh, uh, with addressing the issue of uh, the hypermetabolic state where you're using occlusive kind of dressings. And also uh, we are doing early excision uh, of this dead skin to reduce the catabolic requirement by the body. So you find uh, when we focus now on the sepsis bit, the most important thing in these patients is to identify it early. And I think the sepsis guidelines also uh, apply here because uh, when you find a patient is tachypneic, a patient has tachycardia, a patient has, uh, uh, if you look at the uh, full hemogram, you find that the platelets are very low, that you end, there is neutrophilia. Uh, uh, in children and some adults, you find this intolerance to feeds. They either they're diarrheaing or they're, they're vomiting. Then you, uh, we need to quickly uh, uh, put these patients on the uh, antibiotic regimen according to uh, the uh, protocol for that particular institution and quickly do the blood cultures. Uh, you can take uh, uh, swabs or uh, tissue cultures and then uh, adjust the antibiotic according um, uh, to the culture, uh, microbiology culture sensitivity report that you get. So it's something that uh, you find a patient is well today, tomorrow is gone. So it's very important for you to be able to identify any patient who has temperature less than 36.5 or temperature higher than 39.5, tachycardia, tachycardia, intolerable to feeds. Uh, if you look at the hemogram, they have um, low platelets, then you should have a high index of suspicion and hit the organism's heart. So you find... Um, just the same way the Klebsiella's are very uh, common um, uh, Asinobacter. Uh, the, these, these are the kind of organisms that we see uh, in our setup. So you need to really hit them hard uh, and then do a culture sensitivity report and then adjust your medication. Pseudomonas, how frequent do you meet it? 
uh, Sidomonas and I think Klebsiella. I think they're the most common uh, for more culture results in most of our burn patients. Of course, there's also, uh, in some instances, uh, fungal infection has been detected in uh, burn patients as a cause of the sepsis. And you find in some burn centers, they actually I use antifungal uh, fluconazole in treatment of these particular patients. So in patients, in the initial management of uh, the burns patient, yeah. is, it, is there a role for antibiotic prophylaxis? Uh, in the initial, when a patient presents to you in a burn center, there is no role of antibiotic mm -hmm. uh, uh, prophylaxis. Actually, that's one area where antibiotics are, are misused. What you need to do is to do early burn debridement and excision and then use uh, proper dressing, depending on the depth. You find the superficial burns, you can use uh, a tool dressing, uh, uh, but you find the deeper burns, then you can combine uh, with a, a silver, copper, or antibiotic uh, uh, impregnated kind of dressings uh, for those particular patients. Only when then they present uh, with the uh, uh, features of sepsis, as defined in the in the burn sepsis guideline by American Burns Association, is when now introduce antibiotic treatment for them. Okay, which which antibiotic would you recommend as a mm. broad spectrum? Do you so pre uh, prefer broad spectrum? Yeah, yeah. As we do culture, so we just so if we find mm -hmm. the EEC is normal for us, we uh, put these patients on meropenem. Uh, do the UECs if they're normal, you add amikacin, uh, as uh, and that's after you've withdrawn the, the samples for culture and then adjust it accordingly. Okay, yeah. so the infectious disease guys won't come for our jaws, yeah. It's, 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 it's something <laughs> we, we argue, with, but I think, uh, for example, one of the institutions that uh, I used to work with, they you no longer you can no longer prescribe. Meleponem, uh, Mikasa as the first line in bands, and that poses a challenge. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, these are all of us working together with the infectious disease team to be able to do the best uh, for the patient. Yeah. Okay. So still, still on the on the burn wounds. So usually, uh, the best way a wound can heal yeah. is by epithelialization. Yes. And you find that uh, this is sometimes difficult, especially with uh, so the, the full thickness bands and the superficial partial thickness bands, especially if they cover a large area. So when do you do an escarectomy? Yeah. When do you do an escarotomy? Yeah. What is the difference? Mm -hmm. And how do you help wounds, larger wounds yeah. so to re-epithelialize? Uh, what you need to know, that depth classification helps us to uh, know how to approach this patient. Mm -hmm. When a patient has superficial burns, and this is traditionally what has been called the first degree, uh, and you find these patients will recover well within 14 days by themselves. Um, and that applies also to uh, uh, superficial uh, partial thickness, which will take a longer duration, around 21 days. And as long as the skin appendages were not destroyed, because this one goes to the level of papillary dermis, then these patients can heal by themselves. The deeper bands that go to the reticular level and to the subcutaneous level, 
uh, and this is shown when an esker forms, you know that this is a full thickness mat. That should clearly indicate to you when there's an esker that this was a that gone beyond the reticular dermis. There, you need to go and do an escarectomy. So, escarectomy is basically going to remove that esker, and uh, so that the the skin can be able to uh, well to remove the esker. Once the esker has been removed, then good granulation tissue will form, and then these patients will definitely require skin grafting for them to heal. When you go and say escarotomy, escarotomy is where now, especially in the extremities, the hands. Uh, the legs, and sometimes you can find around the chest. Uh, this is done to uh, uh, release the pressure. Yeah, well, the compartment syndrome because of the destruction of tissues and swelling, so that uh, there is no necrosis of those particular tissues. So that is a skeletal means It's actually done as an outpatient procedure, and you can do it uh, quickly uh, uh, in the uh, accident and emergency. Uh, of course, observing their septic uh, uh, techniques. Uh, and for these patients, maybe there is where you may consider, uh, depending on the kind of institution, uh, putting them on prophylactic antibiotics. Um, uh, and then there's for the electrical bands also, where you may have now to do the escarectomy and now fasciotomy. Fasciotomy is actually now going deep uh, because if you look at electrical bands, the band is from the higher resistance coming up. So in that particular case, then you go and uh, 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 release the fascia between the muscle so that, that uh, there's no uh, extreme uh, swelling and necrosis of those tissues. Okay. Yes. So compartment syndrome can present with the pallor because of the increasing pressures in the compartments. Yeah. Circulation is... Uh, is compromised. Yes. So they will have distal circulation is impaired. Yeah. The nerves are also threatened. Mm-hmm. So we will have uh, paresthesias. Yeah. And then there will be pain. Yes. Because of compression of nerves. Yeah. So and then what else? So those are the four P's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can also they uh, can also when you examine them mm-hmm. when you touch that tissue mm-hmm. it will be very you feel it will be very tense. Yeah. And uh, inability of that patient to uh, to move that particular uh, joint freely. And, and that is an easy way uh, uh, to, to actually, uh, uh, and even when you want to do an escarotomy, uh, once you release, you can actually see the muscles just breathing uh, and relaxing by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, you can also measure the, there's ways you can measure the intracompartmental uh, pressures, anything above 30 to 40 then you know that is increased the compartmental pressure and you need to do something. 30, is it 30 millimeters of mercury or 30 millimeters of water? Uh, 30 millimeters of mercury. Okay. Yeah. So the BANS guidelines recommend early, early grafting. Mm-hmm. So could you tell us a little mm-hmm. principles mm-hmm. of grafting? When do we use a full thickness graft? Mm-hmm. When do we use a, a the, the 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 skin only as a graft? So you find that uh, uh, early excision, uh, early deployment excision and grafting is actually recommended to also, and it helps ease the metabolic uh, effect of the bonds. 
So you find um, the, the split thickness is actually what we use the grafting of choice that we do use. Uh, hardly likely will you use a full thickness, uh, except in instances where you're addressing other band complications that have occurred. Maybe you've released a contraction in a place uh, where you don't want to fashion a flap. Maybe you can use a skin graft, a full thickness there. Uh, where you're doing ectropion release, maybe you can use for that. Yeah, but majority of the bands we just use full thickness, uh, split thickness uh, kind of grafting. Okay. And how about in cases where sometimes we have lost too much skin and uh, we don't, we, we can't harvest anymore? Yeah. Do so, we have skin substitutes? Uh, skin substitutes in our country is a problem. And, um, and that's why we're having discussions where we need to have skin banks, uh, where we can have people donating. And, and it's been used uh, 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 to help patients who have lost a lot of skin. Of course, uh, the best, I think, technology that we have now is what we call a makegraft, where we expand skin in relation between one to nine, and we're able to cover for those patients who have very extensive bands. But these are all, and I think uh, in the near future, we'll be talking about having uh, skin banks in our country uh, so that we can help uh, these patients uh, who are affected with bars. Of course, uh, the challenge with the skin substitutes is the cost. Uh, it's very expensive uh, and most of our population and, and, and you find that uh, most of the uh, people who are affected by bands are from the lower middle or uh, low socioeconomic status may not be able to afford uh, those substitutes. So there was, there was a time when uh, an article yeah. and videos were doing rounds on social media about uh, fish skin being used in places like Brazil. Mm. What, what, comment on that? What, what is yeah. the property of fish skin that so, makes it an ideal cover uh, for wounds? I, I think that there's fish skin and there's also many other uh, biological dressings that you can use in the market. Uh, that will just provide a temporary cover. Uh, and I think uh, if I was given a chance, I'll use it for superficial uh, uh, to uh, uh, superficial partial thickness, uh, which we expect that the skin will be epithelialized by itself. So it was just a matter of providing a temporary cover and it was shown to be working for that particular population in Brazil. Hmm. Yeah. So if we can have a good medical grade fish skin. Yeah. You think we can improve yeah. a little in terms of yeah, our... Yeah, it, 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 it can help. As long as the technology to produce it is mm -hmm. cheaper than the available dressings you have in the market. The issue is the cost. Ban, mm -hmm. I think, uh, in a future, uh, maybe uh, podcast will discuss about the economic burden of uh, treating a ban patient because it's a very costly affair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what if someone has healed from the initial stages of bands and then they have developed things like scars, contractures. Mm -hmm. What are the available options for them? There are many. Uh, you can, from simple uh, contracture release, uh, mm -hmm. you can use full thickness, you can use local flaps. Uh, of course, there's all of, also of, uh, adipocyte uh, derived stem cells uh, in terms of managing those scars. Uh, uh, the silicone dressings, we can use, um, uh, and, and normally when you're addressing these patients, we encourage, we use pressure band and uh, ultimately, that's equal kind of dressing. So, 
we want to forecast and try to see what the future of ban care is like. Yeah. So what are the potential areas of research that uh, we need to know as we continue to strive to improve outcomes in ban patients? Yes. So the, I think uh, for our country, I think the first one is, uh, I think, adoption of oxandrolone. Uh, to use it in management, uh, addressing the metabolic effect of hypermetabolic effect of banks, uh, it's something that we need to look at. Uh, but uh, the issue of skin banks is something that we really need to explore. Of course, uh, development of biological dressings from uh, embryonal uh, products is another aspect that I think, with regulatory uh, uh, approvals, we can be able uh, to now uh, come up with skin substitutes. Which can be able to use uh, for a patient. So I think uh, that, in terms of the coverage of the wounds, but of course, uh, the ultimate goal is uh, to lessen the burns occurring, and that is maybe using uh, safer uh, modes of, of uh, fire. Cooking, of cooking. Because, cooking. for example, I can tell you in our country, the stoves and uh, the unregulated uh, a bit of the gas industries. And they haphazardly uh, put electrical wires in our home areas, are actually causing a lot of burns. And these are things that we can easily uh, address. Okay, so in summary, today we discussed the management of burns. And management of burns ideally should follow the TLS protocol. This includes checking the airway. And in airway management, you want to check for the need for intubation as early as possible. If you are not sure, probably that patient needs intubation. And then we look at breathing. In breathing, we focus on whether there was carbon monoxide poisoning. And if carbon monoxide poisoning was there, the ideal thing is to give 100% oxygen until you are able to rule it out. Remember that uh, arterial blood gas and uh, pulse oximetry are not good indicators for carbon monoxide poisoning. And then you go to circulation. In circulation, we have noted that uh, first you have to determine the band surface area, and then we have Parkland's formula and Brooks formula. Parkland's formula is uh, sets that four mLs per kg per percentage of total band surface area. So the, you give half of that fluid in eight hours, and the remaining half in the remaining 16 hours. Brooks formula is similar to Parkland's formula, except that it, it reduces the fluid uh, that is given. So Brooks formula gives it at two mLs per kg per percentage of band surface area. Remember that when you're looking at the circulation, urine output is a good proxy. Your target is 0.5 mL per kg per hour in adults and one mL per kg per hour in in children. And then it's also important to focus on the hypermetabolic response in, uh, in BANS patients. So this include early enteral nutrition, highly recommended, and also taking care of giving uh, drugs like oxandrolone and propranolone, which can reduce the hypermetabolic response. So close dressing is recommended in early management of the wounds, and then also early excision and grafting. Thank you very much. Remember to log on to your doctor online portal. You will get to answer 10 MCQs 
and then you'll get your CPD points posted directly to the Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentist Council portal. See you in our next episode. Till next time. Bye-bye.